0: Well, the title of my message is simply, What Needs Rebuilding? We're in chapter 21 of the story, and if you're hanging with us up to this point, you already know that we're going to be leaving the Old Testament. This week is our last week in the Old Testament, and then we will be coming into the New Testament next week. I really hope that you have been following along in your reading. It has been a real blessing to be reading it and really has caused me to think about things that I haven't thought about in a long time. Uh, Some of those things, especially as they are relevant, even yet today. And I know throughout the weeks I had the church in Lake Crystal, uh, one of the guys down there, one of the leaders said to me, man, we're getting kind of tired of Israel screwing up. And then coming back to the Lord and His mercy. And I said, well, welcome to today. You know, we're not a whole lot different. And we do get tired of messing up. So in the story right now, where we're at, if you recall, that the kingdom of of God's people had split into two divisions, two parts, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And as they turned away from God, they were both taken into captivity. First, the Assyrian Empire came and took the northern kingdom into captivity and dispersed them into exile throughout the land. Then Babylon, the empire, the Babylonian empire was raised in power and they came and and they conquered Judah, which contained the city of Jerusalem. And again, the people were exported, exiled throughout the Babylonian empire. And then last week we talked uh, about the Persian empire. The Persian empire came along after the Babylonians and they were a little bit kinder in the way they dealt with the exiles. And if you recall, there was a king named Cyrus, and he had given the green light, the okay, for the exiles that wanted to, to return to Judah, to Jerusalem. And where we're at today, that had taken place approximately 80 years ago. So 80 years ago, King Cyrus had said, if you want to go, go. And if you recall, about 50,000 went and a number stayed. So what we're looking at at time frame a calendar these years sometimes don't mean too much to us but we're looking over 2500 years ago in 537 BC 537 BC is when Zerubbabel led the first group of 50,000 back and if you if you do recall they were to go back and really their mandate from the Lord was to rebuild the temple rebuild the temple first And they went back and eventually they got the temple rebuilt. Their priorities got messed up. They they started getting too many things for themselves and building their own fancy homes, much fancier than needed. And they got back on track because of a prophet speaking to them and words of warning. And finally, it was finished. It was restored. Now, Zerubbabel was the grandson of Judah's second to the last king. So that royal lineage was still in there if you remember, the last king was because of a coup. So God was restoring, even though we don't see it, that royal lineage that he had promised of King David from way back in history. Then in about 458 B.C., a scribe and teacher named Ezra was given permission to go back. And he was to go back, and he was to... Set in leaders for Israel. He went in with the blessing of the king or the king of Persia again. And he was to set in leaders of the people. Uh, set in priests. And get the Levites back working at the temple. Kind of reestablishing everything in terms of the worship. And he was an extraordinary teacher. He was a Levite. And his job was to, personally, was to go back and also begin to teach the law. Because not only had the temple needed to be rebuilt... The people's hearts needed to be rebuilt. They had gotten so far away from the Lord and from the law, and his job was to begin to teach them and get them back on the right track. When he got there, he saw that the temple was in good order. And if you remember, we sometimes lose this fact, but if you were Jewish, that was the only place, the temple, where they were to sacrifice and and go in through all of the intricacies of their worship. So until it was rebuilt, they couldn't worship God the way they were commanded to. He got there, the temple was rebuilt, but the people were a mess. They were a mess. They were intermarrying with the cultures around them, which was direct violation of the law. And they were worshiping idols again. So that was in 458 B.C. Then in 445 B.C., about 13 years later, so Ezra had been trying to lay the foundation of getting the word in the people now for 13 years. For 13 years he'd been, he'd been preaching, teaching. And the man named Nehemiah was sent. Now Nehemiah's story, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit better in a few minutes, but basically he had a very important position back in Susa. If you remember, Susa was the capital of that Persian empire. And his job, he was the cupbearer of the king, now if you're the cupbearer of the king, basically what that means is that king trusts you with his life. Any poison, anything in the food, anything in the drinks, the cupbearer was responsible and had to taste it first. So he had a very powerful, influential position, even though he was a Jewish exile. And during his time back in Susa, the first two groups had went back with Zerubbabel and Ezra. And he was there wondering, I wonder how it's going. I wonder how it's going back in Judah. I wonder how it's going back in Jerusalem. And then he got a report. One of his brothers, it says, one of his brothers came and gave him a report of what was taking place, and it was a bad report. It was a bad report. The people were in trouble. The walls were totally destroyed. I'm going to read, and it's not going to be on the screen, but it's in Nehemiah Chapter 1, starting at verse 1. This is dealing with the report of what he saw. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of of Halkaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the month in the 20th year. It says, While I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah. He came with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, "'Those who survived the exile are back in the province, but they are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down, and its gates had been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, "'O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands.'" Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servant as he is praying before you day and night. I'm praying for your servants, the people of Israel. And then he says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees and the laws that you gave of your servant Moses. When he got back there, when he got this message, finally the king noticed that his, his countenance was sad, troubled. And the king asked him, what's wrong? And he told him what was wrong. And the interesting thing is, again, in the background, we see how God is working behind the scenes, even with all three of these guys. Nehemiah, the cupbearer, very trusted by the king, comes to the king and he says, here's the deal. All my people have went back are in terrible distress. The city walls are in shambles and the gates have been burned. It was a piles of rubble. And what discouraged him so much is without the city walls, they were in constant threat, constant danger of being overrun by any enemy that would want to come. The city walls weren't there to protect them. And his first order of business when he got back was to assess the situation. So the king says, go, assess the situation. Fix the walls. Now, rebuilding the walls. When Nehemiah went back, he took 42,000 people with him. And the king, because, as we'll see, Nehemiah says, the hand of God was upon me. When he went back, the king let him go with 42,000 people, gave him all kinds of supplies, and then he gave him letters of protection and provision. So wherever he went, whatever part of this huge Persian empire he went, if any local governor or local leader wanted to confront them, challenge them, whatever, they'd show this order of protection from the king. And almost better than that, if they needed anything, they showed him the letter of provision. So God was not only sending his people back, not only sending a leader back, he was going to provide for them everything they needed to rebuild the walls. And as we go through these things, remember there is, there is spiritual meaning behind the temple, the place of worship. There is spiritual meaning to the walls, the protection, the security, the stronghold that they had. All these things are representative even in our own lives when we look at these things from a spiritual perspective comes time to build the walls and it's huge. When he gets there, he finds exactly what his brother had said, piles of rubble. If you remember back a number of lessons, the the walls were leveled, the temple was burned, the city was destroyed. When it talks about the gates were burned, the gates would have been made of wood. The gates were burned, the rubble was charred and this is the mess he comes into. Now, Ezra has been back there for 13 years. Zerubbabel, we're talking 80 years, and the walls haven't been fixed. First thing he does is he goes out at night to assess what needed to be done. Now, as you look at Nehemiah, and I could go a whole nother way with this whole message, and that would be on leadership. Nehemiah shows unbelievable leadership skills. If you want to do a study on leadership, study Nehemiah. He goes out, before he says anything to all of the leaders of the city, he goes out and assesses the situation. And he sees how bad it is. He says he's riding a horse and he has to get off the horse and walk because you can't even ride the horse through all the, rub- rub- the rubbish and rebel that's there. And he goes out and he sees it. And then he comes back and he goes to the leaders. And he talks to the leadership of the city. And the leaders catch his vision. They catch the importance <laughs> And the people catch his vision, and they start to build the walls. Now, spiritually, for you and I, there are times when our walls of protection, spiritually, are pretty well gone. Whatever has caused us to get to that place of dryness, maybe it's backsliddenness, whatever it is, we come to this place, we realize, you know, it's time to start rebuilding those walls. We're giving the enemy way much too much opportunity to wreak havoc in our lives. And trust me, he will if the walls are down and the doors are open. So these walls need to be rebuilt. They need to be restored. And just as will happen to us spiritually, individually, it happens here. Opposition arises almost immediately. As soon as you or I decide to get our lives back on track, as soon as you or I decide, you know what? Enough of trying to live for myself. All the things that I think the world has to offer. As soon as I make the decision to say, you know what? That isn't good enough. I'm going to live for the Lord. Accusations, problems are going to rise. Opposition. And the opposition that he he had to face there, Nehemiah and the people, isn't a whole lot different than the opposition you and I face. First thing that came against him was accusations. You're rebuilding the walls to make yourself strong and you're going to come and attack and take over our cities. Lies. Oftentimes, one of the first things we get in opposition is accusation. What's wrong with you? What do you think you're doing? You think you're better than us. Who are you? Don't be trying to make me live like you're living. It doesn't matter whether we're doing it at all. It doesn't matter. Accusations come. Trying to keep us back in that snare, that trap that we've been caught in. After the accusations came... They're facing intimidation and humiliation. Humiliation. One of the lines I love in the story is the, the, the enemies are outside and they're, they're getting together. And you can almost see them around a the campfire probably with a great big glass of wine. And they're making fun of those. Can you believe those Israelites are trying to build those walls out of those burnt rocks the woods destroyed? Can you believe they're trying to fix the walls? And one of them says, yeah, look at those walls. If a little fox ran over them, they'd tumble down. Humiliation. Humiliation. Then intimidation. As they saw the walls were continuing to be built, they rallied their troops and were planning to siege the city. Let's destroy it before they get too far along. Intimidation. As a Christian who decides to live for the Lord, you're going to face intimidation all the time. And it'll come in lots of forms. Here it came in the form of threatening armies, plots and plans. But... Nehemiah was informed of the plot and informed of the plan. And during all of these things, during the the accusations, the humiliation, the intimidations, he never got his eyes off of God and his calling. He just kept going forward. So then they tried to do something even more subtle. They decided to try to outmaneuver Nehemiah, outthink him, see if they could trap him. One of the times they invited him to come out a whole day from the city. We're going to meet. Nehemiah knew it was a trap. His discernment was sharp. Oh, the enemy will try to take you and I out of the camp. He will try to draw us away and separate us from the body of Christ. He will take us out and try to isolate us. And it puts us in a really dangerous position. We need to discern the danger when we see those kinds of things happening. And we need to respond. We need to have fellowship and those that count can counsel us and can hold us accountable so that we don't fall into that trap of pulling away from the body of Christ. Nehemiah wasn't fooled by their trick. And then their last resort, last resort, they hired an Israelite and they paid him money to act as a false prophet. What a sneaky, low down attack. Churches need to be really aware. And we need to be really aware individually. We not, may not see somebody come in with prophet written on their forehead. But we get those people who like to come to us and say, here's what the Lord says uh, for you. Not about me, it's for you. I got a word for the Lord from, for you. You know what, we need to discern. Do they have a word from the Lord or is this another snare that the devil has set? Nehemiah faced this exact thing. A false prophet was hired to come and tell him a lie. You're supposed to go hide in the temple and all. Whatever, he was going to get his eyes off of God. And he discerned the danger. He was not going to be outmaneuvered. No matter what happened, he was going to stay on track. And the walls were being built. And then it tells us, when the walls were finished, now Ezra had been trying to teach them the word for 13 years. But finally, when the walls are finished, it's like God releases something in the people. And their spirit is hungry for the Word of God. It's hungry for the Word of God. There's been an obedience. They've, finally, the temple has been built. The walls have been rebuilt and now the people go to Ezra and say, get the law and come out and read it to us. And it says, the whole city came and gathered and Ezra got out the law. And it says, from dawn until noon, he read them the law. And it tells us scribes and other teachers and other priests came and we're making sure the people understood. It almost sounds like home groups, small groups, life groups making sure they could talk. Do you understand what that means? Do you get it? All of a sudden, it's like God's upper story and the lower story are finally coming together. God's people are getting it. They're living for Him. They're living lives of obedience. They're allowing to have relationship once again with God. Worship has been restored. It's looking pretty promising. Of course, in the midst of all of that comes... Some stagnancy. You know, as they were reading the word, it started to penetrate. And one of the examples we see in the story was there was a holiday, a religious day that they hadn't, the Bible says they hadn't celebrated it like this since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. Joshua, way back, hundreds of years earlier when they first had entered the promised land. It was called the Feast of Booths or some of your translations may refer to it as the Feast of Tabernacles. But the people were so stirred as Ezra was was reading it, at noon, during the reading, the people are weeping. Conviction is all over them. They're being convicted of the way they've abandoned God. The way they've been misrepresenting God as his chosen people. And it says they're weeping and tears, they're wailing. And at noon, finally, finally at noon, Ezra quits reading and he says, it's time to stop the weeping and the wailing. This is a holy day. This is a sacred day amongst our people. It's the Feast of Booths. It's almost like he's saying, you know what? You're back on track. God's love is available. It's time to celebrate. And they wanted to do it by worshiping. They recognized this Feast of Booths and it tells you what that simply was, was they they, they built little tabernacles or, or tents or whatever you want to call them out of whatever kind of shrubbery, small branches, whatever they could build it out of. And they even built them on the roofs of their home, wherever they could build them, and then they were to live in them, to remember when the people were delivered from Egypt and lived all those years in the wilderness in tents. And they embraced it because they were so hungry to worship God. And for me, it can be a reminder for us sometimes when When we've been in that dry place, that dark place, sometimes it's because of our own bad choices. Other times it's just because we're going through one of those trials and tests that we were singing about. Sometimes, but whatever it is, when we come out of it, it's like, oh, thank you, God. And there's like a fire, that fire that was just smoldering. The embers were almost cold. It's like the Holy Spirit blows on those embers. And there becomes this hunger again in us. And that's kind of where the people were. They were ready to worship God, giving it all that they could. The people, the priests, everyone. The situation is really one that we haven't seen much as we've been studying the history of Israel. When you look at what's taken place, the people have been brought back from exile. They are back in the promised land. The temple, the only place that they could sacrifice and worship, had been rebuilt. Therefore, worship had been restored. The walls of protection were rebuilt and the hearts of the people had been rebuilt. That inner working. All those other things were external. But this inner working of God on the hearts of the people and their hearts were back where they were supposed to be in that place of honoring and worshiping God, living for God. Really, it seems like finally, if you remember how many times we've mentioned God's upper story plan. He wanted a people back in relationship with him, just like Adam and Eve were before sin. He wanted to fellowship with them. But he also wanted a people that the world would look at and they would recognize that those people, theirs is the one true God. And they're finally back at that place. And that's still God's heart. He wants a people. He wants us his church, his body, his bride, to be a people that the world looks at and says, their, people, their God is the one true God. What they've got, we need. It's the answer. So everything seems to be in alignment, God's upper story and lower story, and as we've been going through the story of Israel, we know it's too good to be true, right? Even as all of that had taken place, it doesn't take too long A few years later, the priests and the people, not just the people, the priests also, had gotten a little complacent. They'd become apathetic in the way they worshipped and in many of the things they did. And of course, as we'd seen over and over, things got a little tough for the people. God was disciplining his people to draw them back to himself. So God sends one more prophet. And if you're familiar with your Bible and if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know the last book of the Bible in the Old Testament is Malachi. And Malachi is this last prophet that God is going to send to the people before what is referred to as 400 years of silence. 400 years, God quits speaking to his people through the prophetic voices. And Malachi is the last one. And Malachi first of all is called by God to go to the people and point out three areas of major concern. And these are three areas that as I was looking at this, I was thinking, you know what? It's 2500 years later and the same issues are popping up like crazy. The same issues First of all, when Malachi started speaking, it was in Malachi chapter 1, starting at verse 6. Remember, he is speaking for the Lord. And he says, As son, a son honors his father, and a servant honors his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, isn't that wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, isn't that wrong? Try offering them to your governor. would "'Would he be pleased with you? "'Would he accept you?' says the Lord Almighty. "'Now implore God to be gracious to us. "'With such offerings from your hands, "'will he accept you?' says the Lord Almighty. "'Oh, that one would shut the temple doors "'so that you would not light these useless fires on my altar. "'I am not pleased with you,' says the Lord Almighty, "'and I will accept no offerings from your hands. "'My name will be great among the nations.' From the rising to the setting of the sun, in every place, incense and pure offering will be brought to my name. However, because my name will be great among the nations. What we see here is the sin of the priests. The sin in worship. You're bringing your leftovers. You're not bringing your best. You're bringing blind animals and diseased animals. They were supposed to bring nothing but the best. The spotless animals, those that were perfect, no physical deformities. And then he goes on and he basically saying, "Do you think I'm the kind of God who's going to find that stuff acceptable?" And his answer was clear: No way. I wish somebody'd shut the temple door so you can't even come in and light those fires that you're burning those detestable animals in. He had had it with their worship. You know, in Romans twelve verse one, it says to us. Present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Is our worship like what had become common in this day or are we bringing God the very best? Fortunately, we are not under the law. Fortunately, we don't have to go through all this ceremony and all this stuff of killing animals and sprinkling blood and burning incense. We don't have to do any of that. And we might think, boy, we got off easy. Not true. Just like in most of the New Testament, God takes it further than those sacrifices. What He wants from us is our whole life to be an example of worship. The totality of our life, worshiping God, has His people, has His church fallen away and bringing unacceptable sacrifices to the Lord. We're all good at maybe putting a smile on and singing the words to a song. God doesn't care about that so much as He cares about your heart and my heart. Are we bringing the best that we have to offer? The second thing of those three things that were a great concern, and I thought it was very appropriate on a day like Mother's Day, in Malachi 2, verse 13, it says this, Another thing that you do, you flood the Lord's altar with your tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. I'd never caught that phrase before. He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. and Do not break the faith with the wife of your youth. The second thing, the sin in the family. The sin in the family. In this case, he's particularly addressing the men, not only for being unfaithful, but for dishonoring their wives. Dishonoring their wives, which influences their children. He says, why do I want you to act this way? Why do I want you not act, to not act like you're, the covenant that you made as you stood before me and made a covenant? And most all of us in here that are married stood in the front of a church somewhere and made a covenant when we exchanged those vows with our wives and our husbands to love and to cherish, to honor. And God is saying to these people, you come and you wail at my altar because I'm not responding to your prayers. I am the witness. You may be able to fool everybody else, but you can't fool me. What's taking place in your homes is not pleasing to me. Because what I want you to do is live according to the covenant that you made with your wife because I want godly offspring. Gal, in our culture today, you can read all the statistics. I don't need to go through them. But the marriage, the home is under attack. Families are being broken left and right. Marriage is being redefined. Why would God have such a big issue of all the things that can go wrong? Why this sin of family did he address with the priests and the people of Israel? I believe it's because of his original upper story desire that his people... Would represent him well to the world. And you don't have to read very much of scripture to see that God continually uses as an analogy the husband and wife for his relationship with his church. And if the husband and wife relationship is a total misrepresentation that God has for him and his church, it will not bring him honor. Is a heavy responsibility for what takes place in our families. And frankly, according to the scriptures, that responsibility, the weightiness of it, falls on us as men, as the spiritual heads of our household. Our wives are equal in the eyes of God, but we have a responsibility that God has given us. In the New Testament, in 1 Peter, it says this In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives, treat her with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you, but, as, but she is your equal partner in God's, in God's gift of new life. If you don't treat her as you should, your prayers will not be heard. Sounds a little bit like what we read in the Old Testament, doesn't it? God has high expectations for the marriage and family unit. And in those high expectations are amazing blessings when we live to honor our spouses and the God. If you were going to put it in our vernacular, you might say, you know what? When you diss your wife, you're dissing God. And it's not going to bring pleasure. So the sin of the priest, the sin in the family, and the third thing of great concern is found in Malachi 3.6. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I, the Lord, do not change. Good thing to remember. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? God says, will a man rob God? God. Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse in the whole nation of you because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed. See again how important it is to God that you and I are representatives of His goodness. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Bring your whole tithe, not just the table scraps, not just the leftovers, not just the loose change you have in your sofa. Not just what remains in your billfold after a Saturday night out where you spent a couple hundred bucks. Not what you've got left over after you pay all your bills. Bring your whole tithe. We're not under the law, thank God. But the principle in the New Testament, tithing was like the starting point. Your offerings and alms go beyond that. And it wasn't because God needs our money and he didn't need their money. It was because the principle that's in place then is still in place today. A principle of blessing because of obedience. You know what the real, real, the real reason most of us don't tithe and give what we could to the Lord? We don't trust Him. Or we're selfish. You will not find those words in the Scripture. Test me in this, says the Lord. It's a powerful principle. Powerful principle. In the Old Testament, it was a law. In the New Testament, it's a principle that will work. He will meet the people's needs. He has promised to meet our needs. It's not... You know, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I'm guessing I'm not much different than the rest of you. I can write out a check for 200 $300 every month for my cell phone bills... Disgusting. I can write out a check for almost 100 bucks a month for my satellite dish. Equally disgusting, maybe worse. The biggest checks I write out, and I come up with five bucks for the Lord. God was telling these people, you know what, you're robbing me, and I'm not going to bless you. Because again, it's not a law, it's not sin. But it's a principle that's to our benefit when we tithe. He told the people, when you do this, there will be food in my house. Now, he's not talking about a fellowship dinner at VCC. What he's talking about, there will be plenty to meet the needs to minister out of my house. Whatever the need is, we will be able to meet those needs as we minister, release it to alms and missions and the needy. It's an amazing Amazing plan of provision that God has. What do those three things have in common? The sins of the priests, worship, the sin of the family, the marriage unit, and the sin of robbing God. What do they have in common? It's clear. It's not giving your best. God wants your best. He wants the totality of our lives to be a sacrifice of praise and worship to him. Not giving our best to God. They weren't giving their best to God. They were giving the disease, the infirm animals to sacrifice. They weren't giving their best to God. They were breaking down the family unit. They were dishonoring the family unit 2,500 years ago. Still happening today. And robbing God. Some people think that God needs our worship. God needs our marriages to be good. God needs our money. He doesn't need any of it. His desire is that we are a people that honors him because he knows it will bless us. And that's his concern because he loves us unconditionally. Unconditionally. At this point, we're about ready to close the Old Testament. But he doesn't leave us with those, those challenging words of rebuke and correction. Thank God. Malachi goes on and he begins to prophesy. And he says, there is going to be one who is coming, the prophet, of Eli- prophet Elijah. Well, it's not Elijah. It's one who's going to come in the power of Elijah, preparing the way. He's telling the people, there's going to be a man. We know his name now looking back, John the Baptist. And he's going to come and he's going to prepare the way for the most climactic event in history. And that's what everything in the Old Testament has been leading up to and pointing at. It's as if everything that has happened so far, there was a great big arrow pointing at Calvary and pointing at the cross and pointing at Jesus. The ultimate conclusion of his perfect plan to redeem his people. And that's where we start next week in the New Testament. The good news of the birth of a Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, as I reflect on what we've studied in the Old Testament, I I am amazed at your patience, your long suffering, and your faithfulness to your people. God, and I am so thankful that you don't change. You are faithful, patient, long-suffering, yet today with your people. God, I pray that first to give you thanks for your Holy Spirit, but also to invite and give permission for your Holy Spirit to mess with our lives, that we might deal with those things in our lives that are hindering our intimacy with you. God, I thank you that no one can pluck us from your hand. We are your sons and daughters. But Lord, I pray that our lives can be a living witness, a living testimony of the great God we serve to the world around us that has an insatiable hunger for what you only can offer. Lord, I pray and thank you for the many times we've seen how you've drawn your people back to yourself. And I thank you that you are still doing that today. That no matter how far we may wander as your people, as your children, all we have to do is turn and you will receive us back. And I pray, Lord, specifically this morning, if there are any like that here today, no matter how far they wandered, you are not a God who gives shame, guilt, condemnation. You are one who receives with love and open arms all your children who come back to you. We rejoice in these truths. I pray now you would bless us as we go our different directions to to gather with family or friends, maybe to celebrate and honor mothers on Mother's Day. Lord, I pray your protection over us as we go. God, and I pray that we do remember we always go forth wherever we go as your ambassadors, your witnesses. May we always bring you glory in Jesus' name, amen.